Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 412, The B Word. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rep transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Isle, Pally, and Danita for signing up already. The Godwinsons are back in England. Harold's sons, along with a fleet of 64 Irish ships loaded down with fighters, have just hit the shores. And it seems like they were students of history because they were taking up the family business. Now these days, if you say Godwinson, you think of a king. But that only happened once, and it only lasted for about 10 months. The old standby, however, the thing a Godwinson could count on like money in the banana stand, was piracy. Don't believe me? Let's run through it real quick. When Wolfnoth hit a breaking point with Athelred and Edric Strayona, he took his ships and he became a pirate. When his son, Godwin, found himself on the outs with Edward the Confessor, he took his ships and he became a pirate. When Godwin's sons came into conflict with the crown, they too took part in a little piracy. Now, obviously, Swain was naturally pretty piratey, stealing nuns, raiding towns, kidnapping cousins, calling his mom a slut in open court. He was a true swashbuckler before his time. But the other kids took to that raider life as well, most notably when their dad called upon them to do it. Even Harold Godwinson took to the sea and plundered English towns when he fell out with Winchester. And of course, there was also that whole debacle where Tostig tried to be a Scandinavian raider. Badly. And this piratical tendency feels a little hypocritical. Because this family was so appalled that King Edward wanted them to ravage the southern town of Dover that they threatened to throw England into a civil war over it. Which gives the impression that they felt duty-bound to protect the south. But it was this very same family who would happily ravage the hell out of southern towns if they were feeling a bit ticked off with the king. It's not exactly ideologically consistent. But then again, they're pirates. And the strangest part of this was that they kept going back to it because it was hardly a winning strategy. It was a mixed bag at best. I mean, look at Wolfnoth. Following his turn to piracy, he just vanishes. Presumably because he died. And we all know how Swain ended up. And some crazy how Tostig was even worse. I mean, Godwin did okay, but he only dabbled in raiding long enough to get his job back. So if there's a lesson in the Godwinson style of piracy, it's quit while you're ahead. Or while you've got ahead. So yeah, becoming a pirate wasn't exactly a genius move. But then again, they're pirates. And now, the sons of Harold Godwinson were in conflict with the crown. And so, much to the chagrin of the people who lived on the southern English coastline, they became pirates. Now as always, our narrative sources are a bit terse. And as such, we're left with the impression that most of the events were minor and over pretty quickly. Especially things like raids. I mean, the Chronicle doesn't even bother to describe what kind of damage the Godwinson boys inflicted. Instead, just simply stating that they unwarily landed in Devon. 
So thanks to the scribes, we don't know the specifics of what they did. We just know that they were confident and unconcerned. Cool. Now thankfully, we do have other sources. And it turns out the Normans didn't just suffer from chivalry. They also, it seems, suffered from financial OCD. And so we have a variety of doomsday books to flip through and get a sense of how things were going on a tax level. If you want to imagine the Normans, just picture particularly bloodthirsty HR block agents. And when we look at the Exxon Doomsday, we see nine manors in Stamborough 100 that 17 years later were still depopulated. And the recorded cause of this devastation was that these manors had been wasted by the Irish, meaning the fleet that had been brought by the sons of Harold Godwinson. So thanks to the tax records, we can be reasonably certain that the would-be kings turned pirates were now causing generational damage to southern regions of their would-be kingdom. Now, interestingly, the manors that were listed in the Exon Doomsday belonged to Judd Hale of Totnes, who was a noble from the continent, and who, given his position and wealth, might have been the governor of Totnes Castle. Now, if this was the case, the piracy of the Godwinsons may have been at least a little bit politically motivated, maybe a lot politically motivated, because this might have been an attempt to lure the Normans out of their castles. And if that is the case, it could explain their confidence, because Harold's sons had landed in territory that was historically friendly to the Godwinsons, and they do appear to have been targeting the local occupying Normans. So if this was all the plan, they might have assumed that they would be welcomed by the local English, hence why they landed unwarily. We can't know for sure, but it is a plausible scenario. Now, some historians have suggested that the boys landed in Devon with the goal of organizing resistance, which would eventually link up with what was developing in Northumbria. However, other historians think that's unlikely, and I personally agree with them. These historians think the Godwinsons launched their campaign for their own purposes, rather than as part of a broader national scheme. And the presence of the Northern unrest was just a coincidence and didn't factor in all that much to their plan, if at all. I mean, it's entirely reasonable that they might have just been raiding to raid. But even if the plan was to launch a rebellion against William by attacking his officers in the region, the problem with that whole plan was that while their official target might have been a man from the continent, most of the people who were living in the area were locals. And it's unlikely that in the heat of a raid, much distinction was being made by the Irish fleet between English people and Norman people. So even if the Godwinsons were trying to dislodge the Normans out of their castle, the way they were going about it was making them a lot of enemies among the English. But honestly... There's a whole other reason why the Godwinsons might have been bold and unwary when they landed. They had 64 ships. And with that big of a fleet, it's entirely possible that they intended to raid the coast right from the start. And their confidence was a result of the fact that they were bringing literal boatloads of fellow pirates along with them. Either way, though, the level of destruction that we read of suggests that this raiding went on for a bit which means that at some point, word of what was happening would have reached London and Winchester. Strangely, though, William didn't get involved. 
He didn't raise an army. He didn't organize a response. He didn't do anything with regard to this invasion in the Southwest. And looking at the evidence in the record, it seems likely that the reason why William stayed put and didn't get involved was because he was distracted. William was probably busy trying to keep an eye on a completely different threat. King Swain of Denmark. Much like how Harold Godwinson didn't want to march north when Tostig and his friends were causing trouble for fear of what William would do in his absence, it seems that William was reluctant to get involved in Devon for fear of what Swain was planning. And so, rather than mustering an army and marching west, William left the defense of the Southwest in the hands of his cousin, a Breton nobleman named Brian, who William had just installed as the Lord of Cornwall. And that brings us to our B word, Brittany. Because like Flanders, Brittany had its fingerprints all over this conquest. Actually, Judd Hale, that noble who was probably the castellan of Totnes, was likely from Brittany, and it doesn't stop there. And just to pull the curtain back a bit, there's a reason why I'm highlighting things like Breton and Flemish involvement. Unlike the mythologized event we're taught in school, the actual conquest was very complicated and culturally straight up messy. Furthermore, when looking at the past, there's often an instinct to flatten it. In fact, you don't even have to look into the past to see this happen. For example, if you aren't from America, but you think about Americans, you're probably thinking about a very specific set of characteristics. But America's huge, just impossibly huge, and the people and the cultures are incredibly diverse. And yet, when people say Americans, all of that gets flattened, and there's an assumption that everyone is the same, when even neighbors tend to be very different on an ideological and cultural level. Well, that's the case with cultures of the past as well. The individuals involved in the conquest of England are there for all kinds of reasons, and they're from all kinds of different territories and backgrounds, and many of them will become the new aristocracy of England, so we should know where they came from and what motivated them. And Brittany is one such place, but we have to avoid flattening them as well. This was no more a monolithic group than any of our modern countries. And one interesting thing that the Breton involvement reveals is how the English were just bit parts in this conquest. For many of the continental nobles, when you dig into what was actually motivating them and what their goals were, the conquest wasn't really about England at all. It was about the continent. England was just collateral in their political schemes on the other side of the channel. So that leaves us with the question, why do we have a Breton lord governing Cornwall? And why was he a relative of William's? Well, the second part is easy to answer. He was William's relative because these were nobles and practically everyone was related in one way or another. But as for why he was governing Cornwall, that answer is much more involved and it has a lot to do with dynastic politics. You might have noticed that Flanders was tied up dynastically and politically with England. Well, in a similar way, Brittany was enmeshed with the blood and politics of Normandy. And there's one particular branch of Breton nobles that were closely related with the Normans. And some of them began to align with them even closer. 
and I'm going to do my best to give you a brief rundown of this branch, as well as his involvement. But I'm not a Breton scholar, nor is this a history of Brittany. Also, this is way outside of my wheelhouse. So I'm just going to do my best to give you a brief description of what was going on. And to the Breton scholar listener out there, yes, I'm talking about you, please forgive me. Okay, so there are many family ties between the nobility of Normandy and Brittany. But the big link occurred about 70 years prior to the conquest, when Duke Richard II of Normandy and Duke Joffrey of Brittany married each other's sisters. And this probably seems a little intense to you, but it was actually pretty typical aristocratic stuff for the time, and also really handy if you're looking to form a lasting alliance. Though, do keep in mind that this was Normandy, and the Normans liked to put their own spin on things. And things went as expected for a few years. Duke Joffrey of Brittany had a couple sons with his new Norman wife. The lines were getting close. And then... Whoops, he died. Now Joffrey's sons were obviously way too young to rule. So his widow, Howis of Normandy, ruled Brittany for them as regent. And that was really lucky for Normandy because it turned out that Duke Richard II of Normandy really wanted to be Brittany's protector, meaning overlord. And now his sister, Howis, was regent. So, you know, mission accomplished. Classic Norman natural causes. Now, eventually, Joffrey's elder son, Alan, was old enough to rule, and he became Duke Alan III, something that his younger brother, Euden, was likely not too pleased about. The brothers didn't seem to get along all that great, especially when power was involved. Now, fast forward about 20 years, and Alan's uncle, Richard II of Normandy, died. And his son, also named Richard, became the new Duke Richard III of Normandy. Unfortunately, the Duke's brother, Robert, who you'll recall was William's dad, did not like this arrangement. It seems that he wanted to be Duke. And so, he kicked up a rebellion. And shortly thereafter, Duke Richard III died of, you guessed it, natural causes. Now, we did discuss the death of Duke Richard III a while back, and you might remember that it looks shady as hell and that I'm not buying it. But neither were a lot of the people in Normandy at the time. And so the situation in the duchy got a little unstable for a while. Live by the Norman natural causes, die by the Norman natural causes. And in the chaos that followed, Duke Alan III saw his chance, and he broke Brittany off from Norman domination. But the two duchies remained entangled in both blood and politics. Then, nine years later, Duke Robert died, and his bastard son, little William, became the new Duke of Normandy. And along with the duchy, he inherited a ton of enemies and few friends. At about the same time as this, Eudon kicked up a conflict with his brother, Duke Alan III, and it was only resolved when Duke Allen gave his brother a bunch of lands and titles. And while Yudon did get a bunch of stuff here, if you're wondering how he felt about his brother being Duke while well, he was just a count, well, Yudon started issuing currency in his own name. So, you know, things were going great over there. 
They were also going great in Normandy, by the way. If you thought Duke Allen had a rough family, you really should check out Williams. And in this next period of Norman history, it gets particularly dicey, with attempted assassinations and all kinds of juicy stuff that I talk about in the Williams series on the members feed. But eventually, William, who was still just a kid, was placed under the protection of an extended and rather bloody family member, Count Gilbert of Eu. But Gilbert wasn't doing the job of Regency alone. There was also another extended family member who we've already met who got involved in this. Duke Allen III of Brittany. The same Duke Allen, who had only recently broken Brittany off from Norman overlordship, well, he was now the guardian for the new Duke of Normandy, which meant he was basically ruling Normandy. It was quite the reversal of fortune, but it was also an expansion of Allen's power that Eudon no doubt resented. Though we should remember that this was Normandy, and William was a Norman. And, well, you know how that goes. And it was only three years into this arrangement, in 1040, when Duke Allen III died suddenly of, say it with me, natural causes. Now, Allen's son, Conan, believed that the Normans poisoned his father. But Conan was only about seven years old at this point, so I doubt he was allowed to say that publicly. Because with Conan being so young he was placed under the care of a regent. And that regent was, you guessed it, his uncle, Count Yudun. And if you think it was fortunate that Conan had a close family member to look after him, think again. This family worked the way that many noble families seem to work. Badly. By becoming regent, Yudun was finally in control of the duchy. And so he kept Conan in custody meaning the kiddo was basically a prisoner. And actually, years later, Conan's supporters would have to actually break him out. But even after he escaped, things were tense between uncle and nephew because Yudon had no interest in giving Conan control of the duchy. Now, the next decade was a parade of dysfunction, impinged honor, and wars over territory from outside the duchy and within including Yudon joining Count Joffrey Martel to fight against Duke William the Bastard on behalf of Maine. So just incredibly chivalric stuff. But amidst all this continental chaos, Conan managed to outmaneuver his uncle Yudon, and he imprisoned him and finally took command of Brittany in 1057, becoming Duke Conan II of Brittany. Though Yudon and his allies continued to fight against Conan for years. And it's unclear whether he held any actual authority in Brittany after his capture, with reports varying. But regardless, the fight continued, and only in 1062 did Yudon's eldest son make peace with Duke Conan. Though Yudon uh, apparently didn't, even after gaining his freedom. But Duke Conan wasn't just a barrier to Yudon's ambitions. He was also a legitimate claimant to the Duchy of Normandy, which was something that their illegitimate Duke, William the Bastard, didn't appreciate. And I'm sure it's a complete coincidence that in 1064, one of Yudon's men, Rivalon of Dole, reached out and invited William the Bastard to join the fight against Yudon's nephew and rival, Duke Conan. William, of course, accepted, and he even brought a friend with him. 
Well, not so much friend as astonished captive who should have known better than to try and engage in diplomacy with William the Bastard. Yep, this all happened during that period where Harold Godwinson foolishly thought he could bargain for his brother and instead found himself imprisoned. And that's how you get to that story of Harold joining the Breton-Norman War and even saving some Norman soldiers from what looks like quicksand or mud. Like I said, it's all very chivalric in that it's stupid, the politics are needlessly complex, and it's full of people dying. But this is a very rough sketch of how Eudon and his faction became close with William of Normandy. You know, at least during times where it suited both their needs. Now, the fight against Duke Conan was messy, and it's not entirely clear which side truly gained the upper hand. Probably neither side. And I'm guessing that Conan and Eudon were preparing for further war when, in 1066, Edward the Confessor died. And when he died and Harold became king, William pivoted and focused all his attention on England. And Eudon pivoted right along with him. As William began to organize the invasion fleet, Eudon provided the duke with thousands of troops from Brittany. But most importantly, Eudon and his sons provided ships, and they were likely placed under the command of two of his sons, Alan Rufus, meaning Alan the Red, and Brian, meaning Brian. Now, he did have another son, Alan Noir, meaning Alan the Black, but he didn't attend, just Alan the Red and Brian. And sending so many troops, so many ships, and even two of his sons makes it likely that Eudon was all in on this England thing. And you can see why. William was probably Eudon's best shot at elevating himself in the conflict against Duke Conan. Furthermore, his older son, Alan Rufus, already held land and title in Normandy. So he was probably going to get dragged into Operation Seahorse regardless. So might as well support him. But meanwhile, in Brittany, Duke Conan II, no longer under the control of Uncle Eudon, was free to speak his mind. And among the things he had to say was that he believed the Normans poisoned his father. Which is understandable. There sure were a lot of suspicious deaths that surround that dynasty. And this degree of animosity made Conan a serious problem for William. And when William asked everyone to please be cool and not attack him right now, because he's got a lot going on in England, he was probably thinking mostly about Conan. And predictably, Conan was having none of it, telling William that he would happily invade as soon as he was given the chance. Now, eventually, the conquest happened. And before he had the chance to make good on his threat, Conan ended up mysteriously dying of, say it with me, natural causes. But many people were accusing the Normans of, say it with me, poison. Now, Duke Conan didn't have any kids, so rule passed to his sister and her husband, much, it seems, to Eudon's chagrin. But meanwhile, in England, far from the proliferation of courtly natural causes on the continent, we see Eudon's sons continuing to climb the social ladder that the Norman conquest was providing. Because that is what England was for large numbers of the nobles who were coming from the continent. 
It was a place for grasping second sons and their progeny to try and make their fortune. And that is largely the point of telling you this sordid tale. Because while the conquest was pretty bad at many things, it was really good at that type of enrichment. I mean, in exchange for his service, Alan Rufus was given extensive lands in England, including many lands that had been the property of Harold Godwinson's wife. And it seems that Alan stuck around and kept helping out his second cousin, the new King William, because Alan appears in a charter in Winchester on the following year. And when Edwin's short-lived rebellion failed, and then the rebellion of York failed, we see Alan Rufus being granted the honor of Richmond, probably right at about the time of this Easter party that we've been talking about. And that grant would have made him one of the wealthiest men in the North. And he soon began working out a plan for Richmond Castle. But Alan wasn't the only son of Udon that had been working hard for the Norman cause in England. There was also Brian. And William was apparently quite pleased with Brian's service, because he established his cousin as the Lord of Cornwall. Which meant that one brother was given lands that had been owned by Harold's widow, and the other brother acquired the governance over the territory that was traditionally ruled by the Godwinsons. And I have to assume that they were given these lands because William was confident in their ability to hold down rebellious territories. Because honestly, if you were looking for placid lands filled with people who would happily accept continental rule, Godwinson territory, along with a side of Yorkshire territory, wouldn't be at the top of my list. But that's how Brian ended up Lord of Cornwall. It's a messy story, and much like this period, his presence in England appears to have had far more to do with continental dynastic feuds and power grabs than it did with any specific interest in the English or concerns about whether or not Archbishop Stigand did the coronation of King Harold. And now Brian had a huge fleet of Irish ships landing on his newly acquired lands. And that wasn't on. He and William had stolen this territory fair and square. So Brian mustered a sizable army along with the support of another continental figure, William Gualdi. And together, they marched upon the sons of Harold Godwinson and their Irish allies. And then frustratingly, we're provided very little information about what happened next. Now, looking at the history of the landing site chosen by the sons, it does seem very likely that they anticipated a friendly reception, just like they probably expected to be welcomed during their campaign of the previous year. And just like that campaign from the previous year, these boys did not get as much support as they anticipated. It's the old rule of an insurgency that we've talked about before. You have to have the support of the peasantry. That is your lifeblood. If you lack that, your insurgency is doomed. And by failing to gain widespread local support, that meant the sons probably only had a few thousand men under their command. While Brian who the Chronicle describes as an earl, was no doubt able to use his position and influence to muster large numbers of knights and able-bodied men from all over the Southwest. And what resulted from this mustering was described by the Chronicle as a large army. And we can assume that it was significantly larger than whatever the sons had managed to cobble together. Making matters worse... The Chronicle tells us that Brian caught the sons of Harold Godwinson and their army unawares. As for where this happened, they leave that part out. 
They also leave out the details of the fighting. Orderick tells us that they were ravaging with fire and sword deep into the interior of the country. But looking at other records, it seems that they are operating in the Stanborough 100, and I don't think anyone would describe the Stanborough 100 as within the interior of the country. So I'm not sure what Orderick was referring to here. Maybe they had moved to another location, or maybe you just got this one wrong. Either way, the Chronicle tells us that when the sons were surprised by Brian and his army, they fought a battle. And then, according to Orderick, they fought a second battle on that same day. Which, to me, sounds like a retreating force engaging in skirmishes as they tried to get the hell out of there. In the fighting, we're told that Brian and his army killed all the best men of the fleet, and only the sons of Harold Godwinson, with a small number of survivors, managed to reach their ships and escape, going back to Ireland. Orderick adds that if it wasn't for the fact that night had fallen during that second battle, nobody would have survived. And if you haven't noticed, Orderick doesn't seem like he was a fan of these boys. And apparently, neither were the people of Devon. This campaign had been an absolute debacle. And when you look at the sources that focus on Ireland, we learn that the Irish were in deep mourning over the incredibly high casualties from the campaign. And as they mourned, the sons of Harold Godwinson boarded ships, left Dublin, and sailed for, wait for it, Flanders. Because even though Flanders was now under new management, it was still Flanders. And the sons of Harold Godwinson were definitely on the outs with England, which apparently is all you need for a Flemish tourist visa. But back in England, there were risings taking place all across the country. We see accounts of uprisings and campaigns in Western Mercia, Devon, Dorset, Cornwall, Somerset, Exeter. Things were kicking off all over the place. Well, not entirely all over the place. South of the Thames, things looked very different. While revolts and battles were being fought elsewhere in the kingdom, central southern England remained relatively quiet. It appears that the presence of William, his ruthless Norman lords, and their sheriffs, as well as certain local figures that had aligned with the Normans, like Thurkill, Edward of Salisbury, and Bishop Wolfstan, were doing an effective job at clamping down any resistance to the new Norman order. And even outside of central southern England, rebels were finding it difficult to gain a foothold. And this is likely due to the fact that, according to Orderick, Archbishop Eldred of York, along with other bishops, had decided to throw in their lot with William. It looks like it wasn't all the bishops, but the support of bishops was a huge deal. Not just because of the cultural weight they provided by having God on speed dial, and not just because bishops tended to be very wealthy men with a lot of resources and, many times, a keen interest in military affairs when it suited them, but also because bishoprics were often located at strategically important locations. If you want to control the Fens, you probably need to hold Ely. If you want to control Somerset, you better get Glastonbury. Who the bishops supported had a huge impact on the shape of the conquest. And I wouldn't be surprised if this ecclesiastical alignment with the Normans had a lot to do with a troubling detail that we get from Orderic. Because we're told that in the face of these uprisings, some English thanes and other citizens, quote, 
rose unequivocally on the Norman side against their fellow countrymen, end quote. And I suspect that this was a major reason why William was able to remain south of the Thames with the bulk of his forces and just let the local authorities handle the uprisings. It was a huge boon in his favor. But the shape of this conflict was about to change again because all of William's fears were well justified. King Swain of Denmark was preparing to invade England. And while he wasn't gonna lead the campaign himself, because he was all too aware of how invading England had gone for his former rival, Harold Hadrada, well, he was still gonna take a swing at dislodging William from the kingdom. And he had just the guy in mind for the task. His brother, probably half-brother, Osborne. And Osborne wasn't going alone. He had a fleet of 240 ships. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com, and you can always join the pleasantry over on Reddit, and you'll find links to that by going to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, clicking communities, and clicking Reddit. Thanks for listening. <laughs>